The first scripture is from Leviticus, the 11th chapter, verse 45. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You must be perfect, be, excuse me, you must be holy because I am holy. And then this is Jesus, Matthew 5, 48, in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is Jesus in Luke 6, 36, in the Sermon on the Plain. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Last year, when we were in Burundi, we got to the last day of the pastor's conference, and I was doing uh, the last talk. And so I got ready to do a talk that I've done before. You may have heard it. It's about Jesus, who is a, a man of the Bible. And so he learns the Bible, lives the Bible, prays the Bible, teaches the Bible. And uh, I was going to do that, and I got up to speak, and suddenly a thunderstorm hit. And on the metal roof of that church, it was so loud that it drowned out my voice and I had to go sit down. So I turned around, went to sat, sit down. As soon as I sat down, they jumped up, started beating the drum, dancing and singing around. And I could only interpret that they were very grateful not to have to listen to another talk. Well, here we are in 2015, and it's the last day of the pastor's conference. It's the next to last talk. It's my turn, and I'm going to do a talk. And I thought, you know, I never got to do that one last year. I think I'll try it again. So I got up uh, to start the talk, and it started raining. And raining harder, so I went and sat down, and we had a rain delay. And then it looked like it was letting up, so I went and started again. It started raining hard again. I went and sat down. Third time, I went and sat uh, and stood back up, and it started raining like crazy on the metal roof. Couldn't even hear yourself think. And so I went and sat down uh, during the thunderstorm and thought to myself, God, what is it? What is it about this talk that you don't want them to hear? What's the problem? Is it, is it not a good talk? Or, or are you upset that I had originally planned to talk about something and I switched it to talk about something else? What gives? What mistake have I made? And so I was, as I was thinking about that, the translator leans over to me and says this. He said, you know, when it rains like this in Burundi, it is considered a tremendous blessing from God. So now, yeah. Now I think they'll bring me back every year just to make it rain. (laughs) But what really interested me was this, how my interpretation and his interpretation could be so different. My interpretation had to be uh, had to uh, do with judgment and falling short and not living up to whatever God may have wanted. And, And his interpretation had to do with amazing grace and blessing and freedom. And, and I really thought about that uh, on the way home and thought, what went on? And, and I don't guess I'd completely know. I have some guesses. One is that I've learned this about me. You may have heard the, the, uh, the, the term before. And, and I have what Brene Brown calls a shame voice. And that is, you know, the voice in the back of your head that always tells you nobody really wants to hear you. Or nobody wants to read that. Or if they really knew what you were like, they wouldn't listen to you. You know, the voice that, that Kate... Uh, plays those tapes over and over. And, and I know that's operative, and, and I was disappointed to learn that that actually crosses the Atlantic and goes over to different continents. Uh, but then there's also just, I think, this. And uh, Bruce Wilkinson, a Christian author, said it best several years ago. He said, you know, most all of us believe God loves us, but we really have a hard time believing God likes us. And so there's that sense that, that even though I'm over there and I'm trying to do good, that, you know, God's just looking for something not to be happy about. 
And God's just waiting for me to trip up. That there's no way my effort in my presence over there can bring God any sort of joy at all. It's just minus no matter what I do. And so when we get to scriptures like this morning's scriptures, you must be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Or be perfect because your Father in heaven is perfect. It only tends to feed that sense of anxiety that I have that, that God is just waiting for me to mess up. That God is a standard and I can never, I can never get there. And so it becomes quite troubling. Well, what I want to tell you this morning is this. I do believe that the scripture is completely correct. That we are to be holy as God is holy. That we are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. But here's the thing. I think perfection and holiness means something different in the biblical culture than what we've made it mean in our life today. And I think it's much less condemning and shaming than we have made it out to be. You know, sometimes things just get lost in translation. Sometimes you move cultures and meanings of words and and actions uh, change completely. I, I know I've been to Burundi enough times to experience that for myself. I remember several years ago we were being introduced and so... I was talking about myself and and I told them about my three children. And then I said, and and my wife um, is home back in the States. Uh, She can't come to be with me. She's staying at home to take care of the animals. So immediately a hand goes up and I'm thinking, what was that? And so translator calls on the guy and apparently his question is this. Well, how many goats do you have? So I said animals meant one thing. He heard animals meant something different. The same word. But in two different cultural situations, I believe the same thing happens with the words holy and perfect when we come to the Bible. So if you'll work with me just a few minutes this morning, I want to try to walk back into that culture with you and help you see that holy and perfection are very wonderful things and wonderful things that you and I absolutely can do. It's not something that God is looking to hold against us, but rather uh, something that God looks for from us and frequently finds in us. So here's the deal. Most of you are probably aware that there's lots of commandments in the Bible. In the Torah, there's 613 commandments. But when you have 613 commandments, how do you know? How do you remember them all, much less know which ones uh, to carry out? Uh, What the rabbis said, the great sages, they called it a sea of Torah. You know, and how do you find the the, the drops of water in this in this massive uh, sea? Now, they wanted to obey the commandments, not because they thought they'd be punished if they didn't, but because they loved God. They wanted to honor God and they wanted to move into the life that God has for them, that that they would live if they lived according to God's uh, will. So they're trying to figure out how do you how do you? do all 613. Well, it reminds me of the story years ago. You may have heard it. Uh, the great uh, comedian W.C. Fields. Uh, he's ill near the end of his life. He's in the hospital and his friends are stunned to find him with an open Bible. And so they walk in the room and here's W.C. Fields with a Bible opened and they said, what are you looking for? And he said, loopholes, looking for loopholes. Well, there's always people that are looking to see if we can get that 613 down to something manageable. And and the sages before Jesus' day and during Jesus' day came up with a number of, of wonderful possibilities. The first one is probably obvious to you. And that is they thought, well, let's narrow it down to 10, the Ten Commandments. In fact, you may know the word commandment actually means summary. So when Jesus said a new commandment, I give you, Jesus is basically telling his disciples, look, we've been at this three years. 
let me summarize it for you. Let me, let me get it all together for you. Love one another the way I've loved you. So, so a commandment helps you keep all the other individual rules, ordinances, and, and statutes. So there are 10 of them. So that's one obvious place to look. Well, others looked at Psalm 15, which talks about who can go into God's presence, who can ascend God's holy hill. And there are six uh, parallelisms. Uh, so six things uh, stated in poetic fashion. So they thought, well, let's look at these six. Well, somebody else worked harder than that. And they said, I think we can get it down to three. And they said, what about Micah 6, 8? Micah 6, 8, the prophet asked the question, what does the Lord your God require of you? But just three things to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Well, you know, there's at least one in every crowd that thought, I can do better than three. And they got it down to one. And one of the big debates in Jesus day, and we'll see this when they ask him what the greatest commandment is, is which one is the one? What's the mega principle? What's the giant reader's digest version? What's going to hold all this together? And some of them said it's the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Do that. You've done everything. And others go, no, no, it's Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbors yourself. But there's another group that said, no, I don't think so. It's Leviticus 11.45, which is repeated seven different ways. And seven is a very significant biblical number in the scripture, which is be holy. And so they, they, they different groups argued that this was the one key to keeping all that God wanted us to do. So what's interesting, of course, is when they asked Jesus what the answer was, he put two of them together. And he said, well, actually, it's these two. Love God. Love others. And it almost looks like Jesus has perhaps forgotten the other contender, Leviticus 11. But he hasn't. Because when he's on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. Be perfect as your father and as your father in heaven is perfect. And that's just another word for holy. He's giving them Leviticus 1145, which, by the way, every school child would have known. I know you and I don't spend a lot of time in Leviticus, but that's actually the book in Jesus day that they used to teach children to read. That was their primer. So in other words, instead of see spot and see Jane, it was be holy because I am holy. And so everyone knew it. Uh, they knew this text. And so Jesus actually gives credence to, to be uh, holy or be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Now that I've taken you there, but let me tell you, the way an Easterner, Hebrew understands it, is a lot different than a 21st century Western Christian understands it. Because what Christians in the West like to do is we always like to ask the question, well, what is God like? And we like to think about the attributes of God. I mean... Come on, all of us at one time or another has done some sort of Bible study about God's characteristics or God's attributes. You know, God is loving, God is powerful, God is faithful, God is wise. And, and, and none of that is wrong. That's just not the way a Jew would do it. You don't, you don't figure out what, the way a person is by their descriptions. You figure out who somebody is by what they do. You look at their actions. We even get this, don't we? Actions speak louder than words. So what they would say is the way you understand how God is, is you look to see what God does and the things that God does. They called holy because holy means you're which one of these is not like the other. Well, the, that would be holy. How is God different from us? Because God does these things. And then in the New Testament, they translated it in the Greek. Perfect. But it simply means being holy and being perfect is doing the things that God does. 
It's not a matter of not making any mistakes. It's not a matter of being sinless. It's not a matter of watching your step. It's a matter of trying to do for other people the things that God has done for us. Now, let me just real quick say, I do believe we all sin. I mean, that's clear, right? I mean, you don't believe that? Uh, just, well, never mind. I was going to suggest you look in the mirror, but that's, that wasn't nice. But anyway, we all sin. We all make mistakes. I'm not saying that we don't make mistakes and that Jesus doesn't die. So it didn't die so that those mistakes would be forgiven and we'd be given a new heart so we could do the things God wants us to do. That is all true. But I'm just saying when it comes to this verse about perfection, that's not what it's about. It's not about our sin and avoiding sin. They understood it as to doing certain things the way God would do them. And so you can imagine it, it became a lively debate about, well, what kind of things does God do anyway? Well, they summarized it and they came up with eight things. Now, you're probably thinking, well, that's hardly much better than Ten Commandments. But I think when you get the hang of the eight, you'll, you'll realize the list is not exhaustive. It's suggestive, and you could kind of figure it out from there. Here's the first thing. They said, here's something God does. God creates. Because in Genesis 1, God made the earth and heavens and everything in them. So anytime you and I are in a creative act, we've fixed dinner, we've repaired something, we've written a poem, we've sung a song. Anytime we engage in creativity, we're doing what God does. Second thing they said God does is God rests. God takes a day off. So anytime you and I uh, honor the Sabbath, we're doing exactly what God does. Third thing they said God does is that God arranges and supports marriages. You might be thinking, what? Well, Genesis 2 and 3, God put the first couple together. Adam and Eve, and they said, every time we are supportive of a marriage and involved in that sort of relationship, we're doing what God would have done. Where did Jesus' first miracle take place? Anybody? Cana, where, what, was he, what was going on? There's a wedding. Why? Because that's exactly one of the eight things they said that God does. God gets in there in, in a marriage and makes it happen. And so the, the third thing uh, was that. So when you're thinking about that wedding next month that you really weren't sure you wanted to attend. Yeah. Well, when you do, you're doing what God does. A fourth thing. God feeds the hungry. Now, where did they get this? Well, they noticed that when the slaves escaped from Egypt and wandered in the desert, they got hungry. So God fed them with manna from heaven. So every time you feed a hungry orphan in Burundi or you help someone hungry here, you're doing what God does. Fifth thing they said is that God visits the sick. Now, you have to stretch like the Hebrews stretched on this one. And this is what they said. When Abraham was circumcised, he was an adult. So let's just say he wasn't feeling so well. And the Bible says that God comforted him. God came to check on him. So when you're in the hospital or you go across the street and bring somebody chicken soup who, who is under the weather, when you do that sort of thing, you are doing what God does because God visits the sick. God not only visits the sick. Number six is they said that God comforts the bereaved. So when someone loses a loved one, and we, and we uh, are there. We send them a card. Uh, we reach out to help in some way. We're doing what God does because they said that when Abraham died, God comforted Isaac. God came and made it better for Isaac. And so that's one of the reasons that we do this. Number seven is fast becoming my favorite. They said God respects the elderly. 
And where in the world did they get that? What's interesting, Genesis 18 um, is about that terrible, wicked place, Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. So God's thinking, God's going to have to do something about Sodom and Gomorrah. But he said, you know, I can't keep this from Abraham. I need to talk with Abraham about it. So when God and Abraham come to talk with each other, in most of your Bibles, it's going to say Abraham stood before the Lord. And that makes sense. I mean, you know, if God comes in the room, you fall on your knees and, and then stand up. I mean, he's the king of the universe. But there's an equally valid alternate translation that the Jews believe in, which says God stood before Abraham. Not so that Abraham could render some sort of judgment or superiority over God, but because it was like God like is like, whoa, this guy's lived a long time. He went a long time without kids. He, he's, he left his country for me. He's been faithful for these many years. I'm going to honor the longevity of his faithfulness. I'm going to stand in his presence. You don't think that happens. Go to the book of Acts when Stephen is being martyred. And what we see is that Stephen looks up in heaven and Jesus stands up. There's a standing, there's an honoring. And so here the honoring is for uh, the elderly. It, it, was, it was a pretty rough trip uh, home from Burundi, as, as uh, Matt made mention of. And so I went to Taco Cabana uh, Thursday and for the first time they gave me the senior discount. And uh, I assumed you know, I'd aged a lot since they'd last seen me. But at least they're respecting the elderly, so that it's a wash. Um, and then the eighth one, God buries the dead. God buries the dead because when Moses dies, God personally buried Moses. So think of what you know the Jewish culture, how important it is to sit in mourning for the seven-day period. And how important it is to show up at funerals. Remember what Yogi Berra said? Not that he's Jewish, but he said, if you don't go to people's funerals, they won't go to yours. Um, you know, that, that reflects, that reflects uh, what's going on. So anyway, you get a picture. It's, it's just a suggestive list. It's not exhaustive. But that's what it was. To be perfect, to be holy was, okay, the things God is doing, we need to do for others. Has nothing to do with forgiveness of sin. Has, you know, what it has to do is, is this expectation that God has for the way that we would leave our li- live our lives. And if you don't believe me, look at this. So, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is mainly preached for Jews. But the Sermon on the Plain, as Luke interprets it, is mainly for people who don't get the Jewish culture. So because they don't get it, it's interesting Jesus chooses a different word. Rather than say, be perfect, he says, be merciful. Do merciful things. Because that's the only way. The Jews already get it, but because the rest of us won't get it, Jesus put it in language. That's what it is. It's not to be afraid that you are missing some standard that God has for you. It's to be invited to make this world the kind of place, because Christ lives in you, that God intends this place to become. One more thing, and I'll let it go. Matthew 25. Jesus says that in the end times, the sheep are separated from the goats. But that's always bugged people because shouldn't like the sheep be the ones with the right beliefs and the goats the ones who didn't believe or had the wrong beliefs? That's not what that's not what happens. It's like the sheep. What did they do? They fed the hungry. They visited the prisons. They clothed the naked. What's Jesus talking about? He said, Matthew 25. I'm just saying there were people who did what God would do. They did for people the very things God. And I'm not saying that's equal to salvation. I'm saying that's living the way that God intends you to live, which in the last days we're going to figure out 
how we were supposed to live. So two things as I close. The first one is this. I hope you've already figured it out. You are already nearing perfection. You are already on the verge of holiness because you've probably already done these eight things. You probably do that and more on a regular basis. So this sort of perfection and holiness or what we will come to call discipleship is not out of the reach of any of you. In John 10, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, you know, you're going to do greater things than I do. And I always think that, well, we'll be doing all this miraculous stuff. Well, maybe so in the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's also the mundane stuff. As Marla mentioned, flying a kite with children that have never seen a kite before. Uh, giving water to someone who doesn't have water. Those are, those are among, and we'll do so many of them, they will be greater things than Jesus. And so the first thing is, you can do it, you're already doing it. The second thing, though, and I think more importantly is this. How do you know what to do? And the answer is, if you're in the Old Testament, you look at God. How do I know how to live uh, and what I'm supposed to do? And the answer is, what did God do? You know, God fed the hungry. God visited the sick. God helped marriage. You do that. But in the New Testament, where do you look? How do I know what to do? You look at Jesus. Remember those bracelets? What would Jesus do? Clearly, yeah, that's what it is to be perfect and holy, is to look at Jesus, see what he would do. But that was 20 centuries ago. How do I do it today? Well, here's what Paul figured out. Paul watched Jesus to see what he did, and Jesus was gone physically from the earth. So Paul said to the Corinthians, now watch me. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. I used to think Paul was arrogant. Paul just gets it. That's how people learn. They watch other people. So here's the thing. You are already doing this, but you will continue to get better at it when you look around and find somebody who's really good at doing things for others that God would do for them. And so look around and find that person. Get to know them. Get to watch them. Look at them in front of you. But then stop for a moment and look behind you and ask yourself, now who's watching me? That's what it is to be a disciple, to have someone in front of you Showing you how to do what God would do and to have someone behind you to see how you did it. There's a great religious leader of the 20th century and he said this. He said, God's people don't need any more textbooks about how to live the Christian life. And of course, he said this before he read my book. Um, But he said, what we need is text people, not textbooks, text people. And when you find a text person and when you become a text person, You have been a disciple.